preaching this morning, we're starting a new sermon series that we're calling Ordinary Faithfulness. Ordinary Faithfulness, because here is what we're absolutely convinced of, that God does his extraordinary work in the ordinary, everyday places that you find yourself. He does his extraordinary work in ordinary life. Do you ever feel like you were made for more? Just kind of go through life and you feel like your experience with God and with faith is more, less than what you think it should be. You know, maybe it's, you know, you wonder if you're missing something and, or you, you meet somebody who has a really vibrant relationship with Jesus and you're like, what do they have that I do not have? Like, what are they, why do they seem to be experiencing Jesus at a level that I'm not currently experiencing? Well, I've been there. I've felt that way. But one of the things that I'm convinced of that we're gonna kind of press into in this series is that the people who have drawn close to God have figured out that Jesus is inviting us into more. But that more that people or that Jesus is inviting us into is not just like mountaintop experiences where you get like goosebumps all of the time, but rather that that experience of more is actually God meeting us in the ordinary, everyday places of our lives. Because here's the deal. You and I, like we can get warm, fuzzy feelings doing all sorts of different things. Hiking the top of a mountain, spending time at dinner with your wife or your husband, um, playing with your kids and just enjoying them. All of those are good places. But what we need in life is we need a God who is big enough to meet us in the mundane. We need a God who's big enough to meet us in the boring, everyday stuff of life. Because here's what it turns out. It turns out that God works in the grit and the grime of the grind. God works in the grit and the grime of the grind. The place where your alarm goes off too early and you wake up kind of groggy and foggy, the other place where your kids just won't stop acting out and whining, or where your homework doesn't end, or where classes seem to go on forever. God works in those kinds of places. And in this series, we're going to explore how we can meet God in those places and how he works in extraordinary ways in those places as well. And we're going to see how God works for us, how God works through us, and how God works with us. So in today's sermon, as we pivot to today, we're gonna see that God gives us biblical community. That's how he shows that he is for you, is he gives you a community called the church because God gives us his people to hold us to him. God gives us his people to hold us to him. He doesn't just give us his people because he wants us to wake up early on Sunday. He gives us his people because he wants us to flourish in our faith. Today's text is from Acts chapter two. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn there, Acts chapter two will be in um, verse 42 through 47. 
And here's what's just happened. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The disciples are waiting in the upper room. And the Spirit comes and forms the church. And what we are experiencing is just after this happened. What we read about is just after this happened. So here's Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. And when I end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond, thanks be to God. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that it's a lamp to our feet. It shows us where we're standing and it's a light to our path. It shows us where to go. God, we pray that we would um, use your word as that, that we would view your word um, as something that guides us into the future with you in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Nicole and I had never been to Europe before, but Nicole's work would relocate us there for a season. We rented an apartment that we never stepped foot in in person, and we sent in all of the necessary forms and paperwork that's required for moving to Europe and getting a visa. And we booked one-way plane tickets through Dublin, Ireland to arrive in Amsterdam the Netherlands, on a warm, sunny day in August. A lot like yesterday, actually. When we arrived at the airport, we were in a completely new country, completely different language, and we found our way through this massive airport that is Schiphol to the taxi stand, and we had the name of our, um, our address written down on a, in my iPhone, and I pulled it out, and I said, as best as I could, Browersgrat 190 in the Jordan. And the taxi driver kind of laughed at me, maybe the same way Jan is laughing at me right now, <laughs> for my horrible Dutch accent, and she just started off into Amsterdam. We didn't really know what to expect as we drove into that city, but sooner or later, the car pulled up to our new home. And there we stood, just this is pictures from where we lived, I know. Um, it was really hard. Um, we pulled up to our new home, but there we stood with all of our baggage in a culture we didn't know, in an unfamiliar neighborhood filled with mixed emotions, nervousness, excitement, lots of anticipation. The neighborhood was beautiful in the summer, and we were fully there, kind of taking in each new sight, each new sound, each new smell, people that would just walk or bicycle on by us. And we learned in that moment that we kind of were different and that if we were gonna kind of blend into this culture, we'd probably have to put some of our Americanness away. So we 
you know, we exchanged our cars for bicycles in, when we moved there. And we started learning new streets, new grocery stores, new ways of doing things, new ways of communicating, new words and phrases and new language. Because if we were going to get on well there, we're gonna have to learn how to live there on its terms. And as it turned out, there would be people there to help us do just that. Well, the passage that I just read, I want us to approach with the same kind of attitude as Nicole and I that warm sunny day in August in Amsterdam. Because the passage that I just read is one of these beautiful pictures because it's so easy to kind of bog down in life that we can miss some of the beauty of what the Bible is painting for us. But what we have here is a picture of what the early church was like. And this picture is like a vision cast forth for us for what the church can be. A vision is a belief of that what of what could be with the conviction that it should be. A vision is a picture of what could be with the belief that it should be. And here we have a vision for what the early church could be and was and what we can be and experience. And this text is like driving into a country that is often so different than our normal experience. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at this text and say, where do we need to learn new ways of being in the Bible, new ways of being Christians in the world that maybe looks different than what we've lived with before? There are three things I want us to notice about this community of of faith in Acts. And um, the first is that these people are devoted to the scriptures. They're devoted to the scriptures. The first thing we can note right there at the beginning of verse 42 is that these people were feasting on the Bible. Look at it. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church was built foundationally on the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. This was something that they gave their lives to. It was something that they ordered their lives around and built their lives upon. It was the sure foundation from which they would do all of their lives. This book, the apostles' teaching, is what they would build it on. It gave shape to their lives individually, and it gave shape to their lives collectively as a group. And here's something that is true. You will build your life on something. You will. You just will. There's no way you cannot build your life on something. If you're a student, you might be trying to build your life on good grades. If you're an adult, you might be trying to build your life on a reputation. That's why we sometimes perfectly manicure our lawns, keep our house looking clean. Not just to look clean sometimes, but also because we, we are trying to build our lives on, on making an appearance of having it all together. Sometimes we build our lives on how we're raising our kids or we build our lives around our kids, which is so easy to do. If you're in business, you might be building your life on your business. You kind of staked your whole identity on, on, on your business and you organize your life around it. That's your most important value. Something we all do. It's normal and natural. For example, NFL tailgaters. 
These people have established that something is important to them. Patriots football. Really, really sad. (laughs) These devoted fans go out of their way each and every week to gather. I I live 15 minutes from Foxborough. They, They would... Lots of them would sit in traffic every single week to gather together and, and spend time together, get ready to talk about the game, to talk about last game and so forth. Um, you know, they were devoted, you could say they were, to de- they were devoted to Bill Belichick's coaching, to the grilling of meat and to beer. Now, I'm not here to bash tailgaters. If that's what you want to do in the freezing cold, be my guest. There's nothing wrong with it. But what I'm trying to say is there's people that organize their lives around things that are important to them, right? Football. It's a fun hobby. I like it. I try to watch it as much as I can when the Steelers are on. And they try, they devote themselves to this. They go out of their way to make arrangements, to, to, to make sure they've secured the parking, to, to make sure they've arranged the babysitter, whatever it might be, so that they can go participate in tailgating, and I'm not interested in turning football into a Jesus juke where I say, why don't you do this as much, blah. I'm not interested in doing that. Football's a good gift that God gives us to enjoy. But what I, what I am saying is that if we don't devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, if we don't devote ourselves to God's word, our lives will orbit around the wrong things. Because the gravitational pull of sinful people is not towards God, it's away from them. It's away from God. So we organize our life. God gives us his people to help hold us to him. And the people of God are devoted to the word of God. And this is an invitation that God gives to organize our life about something that matters. Isaiah, I think I've quoted it before, but it's one of my favorite verses. It says, the grass withers, the flowers fade. We're kind of watching, like my tulips after yesterday. They're like, they're dead. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. God is for us, and he's for us by giving us a community that is chosen together to organize their lives around the scriptures. That's why we say, thanks be to God. That's why we started doing that. It's because these are the words of life. And when we read them, I can't help but respond. Thanks be to God for this. So the church was devoted to the scriptures, but they were also committed to one another. Look at how it describes it in the text, second half of 42. It says, they were committed to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed uh, through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and properties and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. What we see in this text is kind of a real life living out of what it looks like for the people of God to be shaped by the word of God and live together in the world that God has made. And what we see is this kind of, we see lavish generosity, people giving away things. And what we see is people caring for and investing in one another. 
We see God showing up in miraculous ways. And now I know what you're thinking. You may be thinking, Don, there is really very few people in my life that I wanna spend every single day with. Because <laughs> it says every day they went to temple together. And while I don't think the text is necessarily prescribing like us getting together every single day, I do think it is encouraging a life really investing in one another, active participation in the lives of one another. And you might be saying, well, Don, this, this text seems to put forth, put forth something really extraordinary. Like we see the apostles doing, doing signs, we see people selling things, but I don't want you to over-spiritualize or over-idealize what is happening here. Because if you look at it, what we see is that this actually fits into the theme of ordinary Faithfulness. Look at what they're doing. They're breaking bread. They're literally sharing meals, including having communion together. They're in homes together. Nothing special. I, like I'm sure that these homes were cramped sometimes. They couldn't hold as many people as, you know, in comfortable ways, but they just kept gathering in homes. They're in the temple. They're going to church together. They're spending time with one another. Really ordinary places. And what we see is, is in that ordinary place that God shows up in extraordinary ways. In the grit and the grind of the grind. No mountaintops, no fuzzy feelings. Just the everyday parts of life that they shared in together. You know, if I think so, okay, we got this picture, right? How can we begin to take steps towards that? Because it's one thing to say, okay, Don, that's really good. I don't really, but I don't really know how to get there, to there from here. Well, I wanna offer you just two simple mindset shifts to help us take steps in that direction. Shift one. Shift one is we view the people of God from an event from moving from an event to a people. So move from an event to a people. One of the traps that's so easy to fall into is that we view church as just something to go to. That we view church activities as just another thing on our calendar, right? Another event to do, another place to serve, another place to be. Our missional community is just another activity that we have. We've probably all been guilty of this. I have been guilty of this too. But if we're gonna be a church that's committed to the scriptures together and that is committed to one another, we're gonna to have to think of the church as not something we go to, but something we are and as people that we are committing to and that are committing to us. That we are mutually committed to one another. It's not just an event that we attend. Now, this is gonna be really difficult because what we have in our culture right now is consumerism right? Go and take. That's, that's the message of our culture. Go and take. We make things to break so we can literally buy more things, right? This, that's why we have the saying, they don't make them like they used to, because they don't. Like, they literally are made to break, so we buy more. Um, so we have a consumeristic culture where we say, what can I get out of this? How does this benefit me? And what we see in the passage of the Bible is we see actually people more concerned about what they can give towards one another than what they can take from the other. They're all about 
giving. And they're all about serving because they recognize that the people of God are the means that God holds us to himself. So we need to push back against the consumerism. You know, a while back, a friend of mine invited me to a game at Fenway. In, I may be from Pittsburgh, but I love the Boston Red Sox. And I love going to Fenway. There's something about a baseball game on a comfortably warm, um, sunny day. And so he scheduled, we booked it all out. We had it all planned. But for some reason, I can't even remember what, something came up, we couldn't go, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember like later on that night, it was, it was 11 or so, I got my phone rings. I'm like, who's calling me at 11? And I was an unrecognized number. I picked it up. Son of a gun, it was the GM of the Red Sox. And he's like, Don, where were you tonight? We didn't play as well as we could have because you were not in the stands. We, we like, we had so many errors because you weren't there to cheer us on. That never happened. <laughs> never happened. You know why? Because I don't matter to the Red Sox. But you matter to the people of God. When we don't show up, and I'm not trying to reprimand or be condescending. When we don't show up, not just physically, but mentally, when, we're not, when we don't view other people as people that we've committed to, they miss out. And, and we miss out on the blessing of being served. See, this people of God that God calls us to, he uses to hold us to him, and, and you matter. Like no matter where you're from or what your background is or how long you've been journeying in faith or how, how short of a time you've been journeying faith, you matter here. You have a place among the people of God. You have something to offer. And this should be good news to us. The second shift is from scattered to focus. You know, Many of us live lives that are too torn between too many commitments. We have our kids' leagues. We have our leagues. We have our church stuff. We have soccer clubs. We have drama clubs. We have, we have um, neighborhood committees. We, we have, you know, on and on I could list. We have school boards. We have PTOs. We, I could just list all of the different activities, good activities that we have that fill our lives. But so many of us live our lives very scattered. And what we forget is that as people, we're created with relational limitedness. We are relationally limited. We do not have an endless capacity for an endless amount of relationships. So what we end up doing is we overcommit to so many different things, and then we find ourselves surrounded by people who barely know us, and we find ourselves exhausted and tired, and we begin asking, why do I feel so lonely? whenever I'm around people all the time. I wanna help you with this and I wanna give you a little bit of self-understanding. It's helpful for me. This might be helpful for how you relate to your spouse as well. From this point on, I want you to begin seeing yourself as a Lego, okay? Larry Osborne, pastor of a church in California, writes that people are like Legos and every Lego has a finite amount of connectors on it, right? 
And some of you, some of you Legos, like you can connect with so many people. You're like this big block here uh, on the left-hand side or right, left-hand side. You know, you can connect to a lot of different people. You have seemingly endless amounts of connection. But others of us, we're like this little Lego here that has like two little connectors on it, right? And some of you guys married each other and two. So you like, your wife is trying to invite people over all the time and you're like, my Lego blocks are full. And she's like, what do you mean they're full, right? Like this is what happens, but this is the way we are. We all have different relational capacities. And when we spread ourselves out thin, you can't connect with people well. You can't deeply connect with everyone in a meaningful way. Your relational capacity is not endless. Now, I don't want you to quit everything. You need to be involved in hobbies. I want you to be surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. And I want you to enjoy activities both inside and outside the church But what I am saying is that if we're gonna be people committed to one another, we cannot be too stretched out relationally. We have to focus on things that matter and prioritize those things. I mentioned loneliness because loneliness right now is one of the biggest problems in our culture and country today. This was even before the pandemic started, before we isolated ourselves but we're more connected than ever and somehow we feel less known. You have thousands of friends on Facebook, you follow a number of people on TikTok and you have Instagram followers and a lot of them seem to like your posts, but you don't actually feel very close to everyone, anyone, and you don't feel known. And various studies say that loneliness increases mortality, the likelihood of mortality, the likelihood of dementia. It leads to increased anxiety and depression. It leads to cognitive decline, and it leads to several other health effects as well. Loneliness is deadly. But we have a God who is for us because he gives us the antidote to loneliness, and that is his people. A couple weeks ago, I read a book by an author named Andy Crouch. I really recommend it. And it just came out a few weeks ago too. And he writes about Roman culture uh, back in the time of the book of Romans. In the end of the letters in the Bible, which is what the book of Romans is, um, they often end with a bunch of greetings, a bunch of names, you know, that we sometimes like, who is this, who is that? I don't really know. It's just, it feels like... um, the end of a speech or the beginning of a speech. But he writes about how the people of God were organized and he uses Romans to kind of clue us in. I wanna read this to you and notice these names. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my coworker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sospapater, my fellow countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. I know it's not exactly the most edifying piece of scripture, and I've honestly overlooked it many times, but what seems like a random list of names at the end of Romans, which is a letter written by the apostle Paul, is cueing us into something about the people of God, something about how committed they are to one another. 
See, every society kind of divides itself into classes, right? You have the upper class and the lower class and so on. And Roman society was no different. You had, you had higher-ups, people with a lot of affluence and, and power and authority. And um, the person mentioned in that passage was Gaius. Gaius, was, he was kind of a big shot. He had a house and he opened his home up to the church. He's probably wealthy. But what's interesting is not the fact that he was wealthy and opened up his house. A lot of people do that. But I want you to notice who else was there. There were two names that were mentioned, Tertius and Quartus. Because in Roman society, the firstborn often got a name, but every one after that, every son after that, was named where they were in the birth order. So you had Gaius and you had number two, number three, and number four. Now, why am I sharing all of this with you? Well, Paul wrote the book of Romans through an amanuensis. And what an amanuensis was, was literally a professional writer. And this amanuensis' name was Tertius, which means third. He was in the room writing the Bible that Paul was dictating to him. Third, the guy who doesn't even get a name gets a name in the Bible. And what do you know? Son of a gun. Fourth, Quartus. He gets mentioned too. So not only do you have this like super wealthy dude in Gaius inviting people into his home, but presumably at that table with him was the whole church and the people, the person that gets to write the Bible is the number three. And he is a person amongst the people of God. So much so that he actually gets a line that he writes in the Bible where he says, I, Tertius, also greet you in the Lord. Because here's what's beautiful about the people of God, that it doesn't matter your socioeconomic standing. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've named. It doesn't matter if you've been ignored in your childhood or thought less of or don't feel like you've accomplished much in your life. In the people of God, you are a person and you matter and you have a place. See, the people of God is really one of the only places that we can be seen for who we are and loved in spite of it. Because that's what Jesus does. You know, I mentioned that whenever we arrived in Amsterdam, we arrived holding our baggage. And each and every one of us, when we arrived to the church through Jesus Christ, arrived with our baggage. You did. You have baggage. You have stuff you carry with you scars from your childhood, pains, things you've done, things that have been done to you. We all do. That's part of being human. But the church is the one place that because we're committed to one another, we can say, hey, I know you have baggage. I got baggage too. Praise God, we have a savior who sees our baggage and takes us in, who invites us into this family, who invites us as his own. And because of that, you and me, friends, we can say, we can see each other for who we are. And we can say, you know what? I see, I know you struggle with this sin and I know, I know you struggle with loneliness or I know you struggle with depression or I know what your childhood was like, but guess what? Jesus loves you and we love you too because God is for us. He gives us the community of faith who can see us to know us 
and be loved and experience God's love through it. The people of God are devoted to the scriptures. They're committed to one another. Then finally, and I'll say more about this next week, they're engaged in the world. They're engaged in the mission. Look at verse 47. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Daily, every single day growth. Can you imagine what that would have been like? A community of the known in a society of a bunch of numbers. A community of people who loved and cared and served one another in a society that was all about themselves. What would it look like if we lived that way? Keep living that way. Take the next step in living that way. What does it say to the world around them? Because what I see happening here is I see that the mission of God, like they weren't just committed to one another in a holy huddle kind of way, but they were committed to serving the world as well. And the Lord added to their number. There was something so appealing about the people of God and the way they interacted with one another that it drew the world to them because you will know that they're Christians by their love. And we see that here. God was working in and through them and they joined God in his work. They let people come in, more messy people. They let more messy people come in to join this big mess that we called the church that Jesus saves and purifies for himself. They weren't people huddled up. They weren't people that protected. They were people that welcomed others. So, as one of the elders here, I want us to latch on to this vision of the church that this passage gives us. A church devoted to the scriptures, organizes life around it, lets it shape how we live and act and behave and confess and repent and and serve. And a church that's committed to one another, that sees everyone, that notices them as value. So here's a couple steps that we can begin to do that. We can assess our relational commitments and focus in. We can do that by investing in where you are right now. Are you engaged in a missional community? Invest, be present, be involved in those lives. Send a text message that's on, that you haven't sent before to someone letting them know that you're praying for them. Be, be invested at church, use your gifts and serve, show up. Another thing is share a meal. Notice they just, went, they just kept going from house to house, ordinary life. Get to know people and their families, invite them over. Well, they might see how, how my family is. They might see my, how my, my lawn hasn't been mowed, it's lawn, it's long, my kids are misbehaving, whatever. That's okay, that's life. Invite people into your life. And then you can embrace the rhythms that God has given you. Like what, what is your schedule right now? Like, where, where are you already committed? Just embrace that as the place that God wants to meet you and let God's word begin shaping and forming those places. Jesus came to earth. The incarnation happened. He grew up like we did. And then he pulled together a ragtag group of disciples, people on political extremes, people with, whose society thought less of. And he pulled them all together in himself 
You see, he is the one that, that enables the church to happen. He's the one who started it. It is his bride. And God gives us the church to hold us to him. God gives us his people to hold us to him, to remind one another of what Christ has done. Each week at River of Grace, we, we remind one another and remember what Jesus did for us, how he saw us, how he saw all of the baggage that we come with, and he loves us anyways, and how he pulled us into a church that sees us and knows us and loves us too. That, that way that we remind each other is through this gathering and then specifically through communion, the Lord's table. It's the place where we take bread and wine and we remember that Jesus died to purchase for himself this church, the church, and to call us to him.